2 Timothy chapter 4. And um, I have to confess that uh, very much in line with uh, what uh, Derek was saying a bit earlier, that when the conference was, uh, I was asked and I realised this was going to be the final one, it was this chapter that drew me to 2 Timothy. And it was then made me think, well, if this is going to be the final conference, and I didn't even know then there was liable to be day conferences later, but it was this chapter 4 of Paul's final message. Paul at the end of a long and faithful ministry hands the baton on to the next generation. I thought that exactly is the note that this uh, conference of, of dear folk who've been involved with Crusaders uh, all these years, as indeed I was myself right at the beginning. Uh, I don't mean the beginning of Crusaders, the beginning of my, my Christian life and early life. Um, and uh, Crusaders, I owe a lot, in fact, to Crusaders. But actually, through Crusaders, and I met Judy, so I really owe a lot to Crusaders. But, um, so, but how do you inspire the next generation of preachers and teachers? Do you challenge them of the suffering that's going to be ahead of them? Do you tell them of the battle to contending for the truth? Do you thrill them at the prospect of seeing churches growing? Do you give them inspiration of following such a great tradition of preachers and teachers that have gone before them, way back to St. Paul and the other apostles? Well, the inspiration here for Paul is seeing Christ. That's the inspiration of this chapter. In fact, he mentions it five times in this short chapter. In verse 1, he says, in view of his appearing in verse 8 he speaks of the crown of righteousness which the Lord will award to me he speaks in the same verse of of all those who long for his appearing he speaks of his appearing negatively in verse 14 of Alexander's not going to make it Alexander the the copper worker the metal worker or the coppersmith um, did me great harm well will he be there we don't know uh, and uh, the Lord will judge him, repay him for what he's done. Well, that will not be a, may not be uh, a pleasant greeting. But then, of course, in verse 18, he says, the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul has much to look back on, but he's looking forward. That really thrills him and really moves him and fires him up. Here was Paul in Rome, where God wanted him to be. Even though, humanly speaking, it could have seemed unlikely that he was ever going to make it. As he made his way to Rome in this, I don't know what sort of a ship it was, rickety old ship, uh, and uh, is he going to survive a storm? There's going to be a shipwreck. Uh, Is he going to make it? And he had a word from God on that voyage. Don't worry, Paul. You're going to get to Rome. And... uh, He speaks in that same shipwreck. He encourages them of Jesus, whose I am and before whom I stand. That's what fired Paul up. Will he get there? Well, he knows that the real master of the Lord, the Lord of the sea, the one who controls the stormy waters of the waves and the one who controls the stormy waters of opposition to the gospel. Will he get to Rome? Oh, yes, you will. And Paul was assured that he would get there. And as he stood on the ship and spoke of a God before whom he stands, reminded of Elijah, who went into the court of Ahab, that totally pagan court, court of Israel, totally pagan, covered with pagan idolatries all around, with Jezebel and all the 400 or what is it, 850 priests and prophets of Baal around. And he stands there and he says, the Lord God before whom I stand. I don't care who you are, Ahab, but I stand before God. And he says, no rain. And then he marches out. And Daniel, 
before Nebuchadnezzar. It's a little bit hidden in the, in the passage, but it's in there quite clearly. When Nebuchadnezzar has to, is challenged, when Daniel is challenged and his friends as to how they're going to cope in this pagan court, there's a little verse which says, so they stood before the king and they served the king. It literally means they stood before the king, but they knew they stood before the king of kings and lord of lords before they stood before Nebuchadnezzar. And Jesus, standing before Jews and Romans, and anticipating the, the horrors of the next day, he says to the disciples, the world must know that I love the Father and I do all these things at his command. He is the one who gives the orders. All attempts to destroy the church, all attempts to silence the truth, all attempts to prevent the gospel witness even in the name of freedom of speech will fail because Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell are powerless to stop it. And we need to, to have that vision before our eyes. However hard it is at the moment, however hard it is going to be, and we don't really know, without that vision of the future, we could easily... Um, like Timothy, be tempted to, to, to back away and, and perhaps opt for something different, something more quieter life. Paul in prison expects to die. I do believe that verse 6 is not I'm expecting to be released, but I'm expecting to, to by time of my departure, is departure from this life. I'm sure that's the case. Paul recognizing his life is coming to an end and his, um, he charges Timothy, whom he's leaving behind, to keep going. And so verses uh, 3 and 4 give us a glimpse of the promise problems that Timothy is going to face. Because verses 3 and 4 are basically people leaving the church probably in large numbers. And that's the, 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 the problem that many faithful ministers find. When the going is tough, people go. And Timothy may find that. So we will see this morning, we see the problem, then we see the challenge, but you are to do this. We see the example, for I am ready. And then finally the charge uh, in the first two verses. And I believe this passage also gives us, as I hinted, I think on Friday night, a thrilling glimpse into the Lord's way of working. If you just ponder what's happening, but you're going to have to wait just a little bit longer before I unveil as to what that actually is. First, let's look at the problem in verses 3 and 4. It's quite astonishing, isn't it? The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a large number of teachers who will say what their itching ears wants to hear. Just, just think of the logic of this. First of all, they decide what they want to hear. Then they find somebody who's going to say it. Then they go and listen to them in large numbers. And of course, the people are happy because they're hearing what they want to hear. And the preachers are happy because they're incredibly popular. Look at this vast crowd of people who come to listen. And, and I'm saying exactly what they want. And it's lovely. And everybody seems perfectly happy. But the progression is really noteworthy. First of all, you see the message is rejected. They will not put up with, well, I'll not have that. I don't want to know that. I will not, the, the, the sound doctrine is rejected. Sound means healthy. In other words, teaching that makes you spiritually whole. Teaching which is healthy because it's true and it will make you spiritually whole. I've already told you of 
of uh, some of the problems in my very early days in Leamington of I had people who did not want to know the gospel. I have to say I may have given a false impression by the time we left Leamington. It was a wonderful place, not because of my working, but because the church had come alive and we left there with great sadness. It was only in those first two or three years that we had the real problems with leaders of the church saying, I think the doctrine of the atonement is barbaric. I will not have that. I will not have that. That's what they're saying here. Then, of course, the selfish motivation um, echoes from chapter 3 of the lovers of self. We now have people who have, want to listen to things according to their own desires. It's a measure of how clever Satan is. Do you see Satan's subtle ploy here? He persuades people that what will actually do them harm, i.e. rejecting the gospel and therefore coming against, up against the judge in the final day, he persuades them that what will actually do them harm is really good for them because it's nice. Isn't he subtle? Do you see that's what he's doing? He tells people, actually, you'll get on much better if you go and listen to somebody who says nice things to you. Never mind the fact that at the end of the day you're going to be judged for your sin. No, don't worry about that. That's Satan's the deceiver. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who at the end of the day will be saying, well, this is a sinner. But now, he's saying, it's a lovely person. He wants to listen to nice things. Then he finds willing teachers. And literally, it says, uh, a great number, there's a pile in a great heap. He piles them up in a great heap. <laughs> the picture of a huge pile of, of preachers all saying the one thing that people want to listen. But it's not the ministers that the problem. The teachers who tickle the ear to delightful people here are saying, yes, I like it. Oh, I like that. We'll say it again. Oh, it's nice things. Oh, do go on and say it. Yes, I like that. really makes me feel good. And it's very easy for us to just dismiss this, but it is a problem because we actually do prefer to hear nice things. We do prefer people to say nice things about us and that's just as true of speakers I think I might have mentioned to you I have a feeling I mentioned this in uh, a year or maybe the year before that um, I was pulled out very short in a conference preaching conference many years ago when the speaker said I think it was Michael Bourne actually he said preachers say they want to be good preachers but actually what they really want is to be known as a good preacher it's very subtle you see isn't it Satan is very subtle and then of course finally they're fed on fables the choice is the truth or a myth, gospel or stories, fact or fiction, and they prefer to, to go for the fiction. The, the picture here of turning their ears away from the truth. It literally means shielding their ears so they can't hear what they don't want to hear, but they can hear what they do want to hear. So it's a very graphic picture there. Focus on hearing nice stories. I may have told you this story before, but apologies if you have heard it, but it's happened such a long time ago, but it's perfectly true, and I still remember it. On holiday in Wales, we went to found a Welsh-speaking church, and the preacher speak, spoke on the Good Samaritan. And our boys were with us, what, five and seven, something like that? English, what did I say? English-speaking, sorry. English-speaking, isn't it good having a wife? Actually, listen to what I'm saying. It was an English-speaking church. Most of the other churches were Welsh-speaking, so we went to this with our, with our young boys. And the preacher was talking about the Good Samaritan. This is how it went. The, this, this chap who lived in Jericho had gone into Jerusalem to sell a piece of property, got a good price for it, and got all this, this cash, which he hid in the sort of what we call a body money belt and underneath his flowing robes. He went into the Jericho Arms on the way out to have a, a swift half before he headed off down the Jericho Road to go back home. And he got chatting to the barman. And he said, if you don't tell anyone, but I've got 
a great price for this property I've sold, and I've actually got the money hidden here. Don't tell anyone about it. Well, there were three men down the other end of the bar with big ears who picked this up, you see, and they waited till he'd gone out. Then they followed him out down the Jericho Road. This is virtually verbatim what the preacher was telling. And they sort of attacked him, you know, up with his robe, off with the money, and off they went. And the moral of the story is this. Be careful when alcohol loosens your tongue, or you may say more than you mean to. And my seven-year-old boy turned to me and said, how did he get that from the Bible story, Daddy? (laughs) Is it any wonder I've never forgotten that story? He's now 42, so it was quite a long time ago. But people like stories. Anyway, so we come on to the challenge. Um, All this would mean, you see, that Timothy would face a dwindling church, so what's he to do? But you, he says. Uh, in verse 5. This is how we to react. Keep your head. Keep sober. Don't panic. Don't panic when people are appearing to rush away. Just keep firm. Don't let your head be turned by this pressure. As we saw in chapter 1, fan into flames the gift that God has given you for proclaiming the word. It's the word of truth. With all this turning aside, Timothy must not himself turn aside. He must focus on the word of truth. He must secondly endure hardship. Well, we've had plenty of examples of that in this letter and another one here uh, in verse 14 of the Alexander the coppersmith who did me a great deal of harm. We don't know what it is. Uh, Paul doesn't tell us. It just it was very painful to him. But positively, to do the work of an evangelist. Now, I suspect it's at this point we begin to see what lies behind this defection that Paul anticipates Timothy may well face in his ministry. You see, the gospel is a gospel of repentance and faith. It means turning away from sin. It means turning away from the the pleasures of sin for a short while. It means turning away. The word uh, confession in Greek literally means saying the same thing. And that means saying the same thing as God. Agreeing with God's verdict on our lives, which is that we are sinners. And confession says, yes, God, you're right. I agree with you that when you say, I'm a sinner, you are saying the right thing. And the turning that's needed is away from that life, but to turn to Christ. And towards Christ and not to myth. So faith is acknowledging the truth of the gospel, having first acknowledged the truth about ourselves. That God says we are sinners, and we need to do something about it, but don't worry, because Christ has done something about it. So repentance and faith means acknowledging some hard truths. And the evangelist seeks to bring about that response of repentance and faith. Change and submission. Change from the old life and submission to Christ. And the hearer says, no thank you, I'd rather stay as I am and I'll go somewhere else where I'm not challenged. I do remember somebody on one occasion saying to me, um, and that this did encourage me, I don't like your preaching because you're too challenging. That doesn't mean I'd necessarily always got it right, but I thought, well, I missed it, I must be on the right lines. If somebody's finding it challenging, it's better than nice sermon vicar when it wasn't supposed to be a nice sermon it was supposed to be a challenging sermon as they stream out of church and say lovely sermon vicar and uh, I say well actually it wasn't meant to be comforting it was meant to be challenging but you see Satan um, encourages that rather than letting them come to the evangelist Satan says go somewhere else while you hear somebody say something nice things and so they leave the church 
So Timothy is told to discharge all his duties. I don't mean the full scope of the ministry, but I think doing the work, doing all of the work which an evangelist entails. Fully complete the ministry that the Lord has for you. Don't give it up. Keep going. That's his word to Timothy. And then we have Paul's example from verse 6, effectively right down to the end of the chapter, with some examples of, of Paul himself. Paul knows his own ministry is at an end, and the more, he's the more keen for Timothy to press on. Verse 7 could sound a bit like bragging. I fought the good fight, I finished the, fa- the race, I finished, kept the faith, but it isn't at all. Rather, Paul sees that what God wanted him to achieve, or should we say what God wanted to achieve through him, has been accomplished. He's often used pictures of uh, the fight or of the race to refer to the work that God has for him to do. And God's purpose for him, clearly, we can now see, was to bring the gospel to Rome. He said right at the very beginning, before he's even uh, he's able to see through Ananias, uh, not only is he what, I'll tell him what he's going to suffer, but tell him, he is my chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And in Acts 20, as he says goodbye to this church, he says, my life is worth nothing unless I can finish the race and complete the task that Jesus has for me. So he's fought the fight because it's been hard going. And he has finished the race. Because here he is in Rome, witnessing at a high level, though he's paying a high price for it. And so in verse 17 he says, through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles hear it. In Rome, the centre of the known world. And is it not fair enough to see that this was God's plan? This was God, as he moved Paul around, all these journeys and all these different comings and goings, God knew that eventually he was getting to get to Rome. I remember Judy saying many years ago, you'll pardon me if I say this again, love, but you know, what, you know what's coming. Um, it was about the story of Joseph. Uh, and, and thinking, as it were, about God's dealings with Joseph. And I, I thought this was a very good insight. I can't prove any of this, but, but I think it's quite valid. You see, God says, now, I want, I want, Jacob, I want Jacob and family in Egypt. How am I going to get Jacob to Egypt? Well, I'll not budge him unless it's through Joseph or Benjamin. He won't listen to anyone else. So it'll have to be either Joseph or Benjamin that gets him to Egypt. But how am I getting to move to Egypt with all his family? Well, it'll have to be through his stomach. It'll have to be famine. So I'll, I'll, have a, well, I'll arrange a famine, and there'll be food in Egypt and not in Canaan. So he'll have to come down. But how, I still have got to, how am I going to make sure that he's welcome? So I'd better have somebody in charge in Egypt who will supervise the famine and the dealing of the food. And I'll, I'll let Joseph do that, because if Joseph calls him down from, from Canaan, he'll come to Egypt. So how am I going to get Joseph in charge? And what's more, get him in charge in a way that he, they know it's God doing it. Well, I'll get him out of prison to do it. That, that's good, because if I get him out of prison to become prime minister, and he deals with it, then they'll know it's God at work. So how am I going to get him into prison? Well, there's this shit. <laughs> There's this shady lady around the corner. Uh, she'll get him into prison, into trouble. So how am I going to get him into Potiphar's house? Well, he'll have to be a slave to go to Potiphar's house. How am I going to get him to be a slave? Why, I'll get the brothers to sell him. Now, is, does God work like that? I don't know. But you, we can see, the, I mean, Joseph said, God's worked it for good. And are we not entitled to say, God saying, how am I going to get Paul to Rome? Not just to Rome, because he could go there on holiday. How am I going to get Paul to Rome in such a way that everybody listens to him? 
Well, again, I'll have to get him out of prison into court. Because, you see, the Romans have this wonderful system that the, their, their system of law insists that the, 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 the accused has a right to defend himself. So Paul is in court and, and, and is able to defend himself and no doubt what he says is to, to proclaim the gospel and they must all sit there and listen and they cannot stop him. So what does Paul say in verse 17? The Lord stood by me, gave me strength so that through me the gospel, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles, can I say, had to hear it. They would have been furious but they couldn't stop him. Their own system of law said he had a right to be heard. So he was where God wanted him to be. Paul is there in dock, alone? Well, not alone. The Lord stood by me. And this is the exciting bit, which I mentioned right at the beginning, which I feel is so exciting. That God stands by him and says, I brought you here, and the Roman system of law is going to give you the freedom to proclaim the gospel, and their jolly were going to sit there and listen. And the whole guard had to sit and listen. And the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. And Paul in prison is so excited about that. Any wonder? So in the light of all that, we have the charge in verses 1 to 2 as he says to Timothy. And the word for charge, again, is a legal word. It's a word that comes straight out of the law court. As we'd say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's the sort of, not the translation of that, but that's the sort of ethos of our courts today. So this is Paul giving a charge in a similar sort of legal phraseology to Timothy in the light of God's presence, Jesus the judge, Jesus appearing, Jesus' kingdom. That is that day that Paul had in mind in chapter 1, verse 12, that God would keep him until that day. And what I do feel excited about in this chapter is Paul in his prison cell, feeling that the climax and the goal of his ministry has been achieved. Here he is preaching the gospel in Rome, in the centre of the known world, in a way that the authorities just had to listen. Is it not fair to say that verse 7 is meaning, I finished the race, my life's goal has been achieved. Presumably the trial of verse 16 is now past. Uh, the trial which he says at my first defense, so nobody stood by me, that was probably has already happened. And ahead of him Paul sees probably only martyrdom. In spite of his asking for books and parchments, he knows the time is, is up. The race, the fight I was called for has been done. Jesus himself said to the Father, in John 17, I have completed the task that you gave me to do. I can see Paul saying that in prison. Father, I have completed the task. I've witnessed in the center of the world. I've given them the news. I've fought the fight. I've kept the faith. Doesn't mean I've kept the faith doesn't mean I'm still faithful. Uh, I've been faithful. It means I've gone on believing. I believed when you first called me and I still believe today. I think one of the saddest things is to hear people saying, as I remember the former Bishop of Durham, David Jenkins, saying many years ago, well, of course, I was brought up in Crusaders, but I've left all that behind me now. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? I'm thrilled that not by my strength, but by the Lord's strength, since my conversion on the 19th of November 1956, I still believe, I still trust that Christ's death on the cross was for me. And that's the only thing 
that's going to, is valid for me to come into God's presence. A couple of days later, after I was converted, it was through uh, correspondence with Judy and, and the other crusader leader up in, in Manchester, uh, and I went to see the pastor of the church I was attending. It was a Presbyterian church. And um, I went to see him to tell him I'd become a Christian. I was all on my own at home in my room and read letters and Bible, etc. And I went to see him. I wanted to tell you I'd become a Christian. And he tried to put me off. He said, oh, these crusaders, he said, well, they, they get very bit caught up, you know, a bit het up. They, they say they believe the, the Bible, but we don't know what, you know what they believe. They say they believe the original documents, but we don't know what the original documents were. And I can remember sitting in his study as a young man of 19, saying to myself, i just come to tell him I've become a Christian. He's going on about original documents. What is he going on about? And the Lord deflected all his words over my head, and they actually made no impact, apart that I remember them. But you see, interestingly... Six or seven months later, that same man preached on Ezekiel chapter 3 that the Lord said to Ezekiel, if you don't warn the wicked, he'll still die in his sins. Well, I'll have a word with you about it. And I was sitting in the choir as he preached that, and I said to myself, gracious me, I'm going to have to go in the ministry. I'd only been a Christian about seven months. We were engaged by then, so I had to go back and get engaged again because we were going to be ordained. (laughs) But you see, Paul is saying... Paul is saying, he has entrusted me with the gospel and he will protect it right up to that final scene. He will protect it right up to that moment. We cannot miss the stress on Jesus' second coming, which really stirs Paul. He's one with the Father. He's the judge of all men. When he comes, every eye will see him. He's the ruler of the kingdom of God. And he is the one who will present him with that crown of righteousness. It underlines the fact that the word of God does the work of God. Paul has been entrusted with the word of God and he has seen that word work. So Timothy is to go on preaching. Preach the word. Be prepared. Literally be prepared means stay at your post. Stay at your post. As it goes on to say, be prepared in season and after season. As a principal of my college, Morris Wood used to say, uh, you, can, you, you can relax because there are only two occasions when you must preach the gospel. On all other occasions, you, can, you don't need to worry about preaching the gospel. The two occasions when you must preach the gospel, firstly when it's convenient, and secondly when it's not convenient. <laughs> all other times you can forget about it. That's what Paul is saying here, in season and out of season. There's no time when we are, as it were, off duty. Stay at your post. And then the final vision of this letter gives us, the great apostle gives us these two visions of the kingdoms of this world and the heavenly kingdom. The kingdoms of this world where Demas has been attracted to, so he's gone away. Those lovers of pleasure we saw in chapter 3. People prefer their own desires, so they're turning away from the truth. And people like Alexander and others who have left Paul and gone away. The kingdoms of this world have a great appeal and a great attraction. But in the face of them, we have the heavenly kingdom where God will bring him safely to his heavenly kingdom. The rescue, verse 18, does not mean he'll he'll stop the suffering happening, but he'll see me through it, come out the other side. That story on Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm on the lake, Right at the beginning, he said, we are going to the other side. There's a venture in the voyage. And though the seas are wide, the master knows his business and there's land the other side. That's where we're going. The storms may be horrendous, but God will bring us 
safely through. So we have these two dramatic views of the two worldviews in the two courts. We have Caesar's court, where Paul is on his own, but the Lord is at his side. He's by him, giving him strength. He's in the arena, possibly even in the arena, it talks about being rescued, delivered from the lion's mouth. But Caesar's court, uh, over against that, we have the heavenly court, not a corrupt court, like Caesar's court. But the righteous judge is in charge, and he's not by his side now, he's in front of him. And Paul is not standing, he's kneeling, as the righteous judge gives him the crown of righteousness. This is not a reward for faithfulness. The the crown of righteousness is not a reward for faithfulness. It's a verdict on the sinner whose sin has been dealt with and who knows that Christ has died for him. The wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is life. That's the crown of righteousness. So verse 8 is not presumption when he says that there's in store for me a crown of righteousness. It's simply faith. God has said that Jesus took his sins on the cross and Paul says, I believe him. And because Paul believes him and whoever else believes him, because Jesus took punishment for my sin, I'm not guilty. I am now justified by faith in Christ. I now know what that final verdict is going to be. It is going to be welcome. You see, because Jesus died for me, Because Jesus died for you, we have nothing to prove. We do not have to prove ourselves when we come into God's presence. We have a right to be there. We have nothing to prove. We simply point to the cross. Jesus died for your sin, so you have nothing to prove about yourself before God. The the punishment has been fully paid. And amazingly, in Christ, Christ, we have a right to be there. Since we have been justified by faith, i.e. once I believed that my sins were paid for on Calvary, now we know, now that we have peace with God. And when we meet him face to face, the words will be, welcome home. Come on in. Is it any wonder uh, that we, like Paul, long for that? It just can't come soon enough. If only it could happen so soon. The death we celebrate until he comes as we celebrate this today. We celebrate it until he comes. We won't go on celebrating that. We'll be rejoicing in it because we're there because of it. But we celebrate it until he comes. And that death has guaranteed that the righteous judge will acknowledge that our sins have been completely and utterly eradicated. So the challenge that Paul leaves us as we end this Tremendous book and brought through this great conference to a close. It's to acknowledge the gospel or to suffer from the, for the gospel. To please ourselves and the crowd or to please the righteous judge and our commanding officer. To have the Lord against us as a judge or to have the Lord before us placing the crown of righteousness on our heads. To stand with the crowd now Or to stand in worship with the whole host of heaven to whom be glory forever and forever. Amen.